Our scripture reading for today is from Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one like one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard, a some, I heard the sound, uh, the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarters barley of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I heard, I looked, and behold, a pale, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, this is a sobering text, and it's also meant to be an encouraging text to those who have put their faith in Christ. And so I pray that you would help me now, Father, to... Um, balance those things and to be clear about both of those things. I pray that we would walk t away today um, eager to bathe, to bask in your glory, that we would feel sober about the reality of sin, and that we would feel encouraged and emboldened in Christ. Lord, for how you will work in us today, how you will speak to us through your word and through one another in our conversations after church, for how you will work through us into the world as we go our separate ways later this evening, I give you my thanks and praise. In the mighty and the matchless and the merciful name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ was written to the church at a time when they were enduring widespread persecution and pervasive cultural chaos. It was not written to a church in comfort, but it was written to a church in the midst of chaos. It was written to the church at a time when the church needed perspective and a sense of hope and stability in God. It was written at a time when the church was facing fierce cultural and corporate and interpersonal storms. And since this is so, beloved, we need to learn to envision the book of Revelation as a pastoral letter given to the church in order to guide us. That's what it means to say that it's pastoral. The book of Revelation is not given to us just to fascinate us or to become fodder for a lot of theological discussion, even though there's a, a place for those things to some degree. The book of Revelation is given to us to pastor us, to guide us in the will and in the ways of God. It was given to the church then for that purpose. It is given to us now for this very purpose. Of course, we should pray and dialogue about the meaning and the implications of the specific words and symbols that are found throughout this sacred book. We should pray and dialogue about the best interpretive models that will help us to make the most sense of this sacred text together. There's nothing at all wrong with discussing these things prayerfully and humbly. But as we do, we must discipline ourselves not to get lost in the trees and miss the glory of the forest. As we do, we must not allow ourselves to become so given to the details of the book that we become blind to the aim of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ was given to the church 
was given to this particular church at this time to strengthen and guide us as we endure life in this world by fixing our eyes on the glory of God and by fixing our eyes on the purposes and promises and plans of God. We will be guided by God as we fix our eyes upon God. That's what this letter's about. That's what this letter's trying to produce inside of us. Not just discussion and debate and even, even advance in our understanding of the things God says. The main thing God is trying to accomplish through our time in this book is to ground us in him, to root us in him, to cause our hearts and souls to be focused on him, to, be, to feel the stability of what it's like to be near to him. This book was custom designed to stabilize us in faith and to fill us with the joy of God because he is in absolute control of everything and he has promised to work all things for the glory of his name and for the good of every soul who will believe in him. With this aim in mind, Jesus met John on the island of Patmos when he was in the midst of suffering. You remember this, I'm sure. John had been persecuted by the Roman government. In fact, they tried to kill him. If church history is right, they tried to put him in a vat of boiling oil and, and put him to death in that way. But by the grace of God, he lived through that. And when the government saw that he lived, rather than trying to kill him in another way, they exiled him to their version of the island of Alcatraz, where he was put under hard labor and made to suffer there for the sake of the word of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. John was suffering when this revelation came. And you remember that one day he was simply worshiping the Lord on a Sunday. On a resurrection day, he was giving his glory to God. And the Lord Jesus Christ met him there in the midst of his suffering. And he began by revealing his glory to John, which John records for us in chapter 1. John literally saw something of the glory of Christ that surely lifted his eyes up off of the details of his suffering and of life in this world. And then Jesus graciously dictated to John seven letters to the seven churches of Asia, Letters that were meant for the churches existing at that time, but letters that are still meant for all the churches throughout the world over the course of all time. And having revealed there such penetrating and piercing and life-giving things in all seven of those letters, Jesus then escorted John into the very throne room of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and allowed John to see things that others had glimpsed before, but no one had quite seen in the detail that John himself had seen. Isaiah saw these things in part. Ezekiel saw these things in part. But John was given a greater glimpse of the throne room of God than I do believe any other human being before him and probably after him. When John was in the throne room, he actually saw the throne of God. He doesn't describe it for us, but he saw it with his eyes. In the spirit, to be sure, but somehow, literally, John saw it with his eyes. And John saw with his eyes something of the glory of him who was seated on the throne. You'll remember that he saw colors that were like living color, that were demonstrative of the visible, manifest glory of God. He saw peals of lightning and thunder. He felt the rumblings of the power of God. These were manifestations of the actual presence and power of God. John was there to witness these things, to feel the weight of these things, to feel the strength and hope of these things. Surely he felt the fear of God in his heart, and surely he felt the joy of the Lord in his heart at the exact same time. John saw 24 other thrones with 24 elders seated on those thrones who were clothed in white, the white of the righteousness of Christ that had forgiven their sin and given them a place in the kingdom of God. He saw the golden crowns upon their heads by which God honored them through the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not deserve in themselves to be honored, but they were honored by faith in Christ. John saw this with his own eyes, beloved. John saw the four living creatures who are strange and glorious in appearance. He saw the seven blazing torches that are before the throne of God that are symbols of the seven spirits of God, which together are a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. John listened as the four living creatures worshiped the Lord, and he watched as the 24 elders then bowed before the Lord and also worshiped him in these words. First the creature said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then the 24 elders bowed before the throne and said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, 
to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Having seen these things and having felt the awe of the glory of God deep within his heart, John then saw a scroll in the very hand of God. Obviously, God does not have a physical hand, but somehow or other, just to help him understand, God allowed him to see a scroll in something like the hand of God, and he noticed that there was writing on it inside and outside. It was filled with the speech of God. It was filled with the sovereign will of God manifest for heaven and earth. It was sealed with seven seals, and no one could look inside of it. No one could read it. John then felt the pain of this fact that no one in heaven or on earth was worthy to open the scroll. But by the grace of God, he then saw the Lamb of God in the midst of the four living creatures, very near to the throne of God. And he knew that that was the Lamb of God who is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He knew that this is the Lamb who had laid down his life to redeem for God a people from every tribe and tongue and nation on this earth. He knew that he was beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. And he saw along with all heaven and earth that this one alone was worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father and to reveal the things that are written in sight of it. John then listened as the rising crescendo of worship came, first from the 24 elders and the living creatures, and then from all of the angels of heaven who joined in the chorus. And then finally John saw, I don't know what this would have looked like to his sight, but somehow he says that he saw, quote, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Can you imagine what it would be like to see and hear and feel the glory of all these things? Beloved, God gave John such a grace, not only for his sake, but for the sake of the church. Having allowed John to be in that place and to see and feel the power of these things, God then allowed John to see and hear the as the lamb began to open each seal and as the contents of the scroll began to be revealed. These contents, especially the first seven seals, what what is contained in them, they certainly echo Matthew 24 and Mark 13. I encourage you to write that down if you're a note taker. And I encourage you in the coming weeks to read those chapters again and again because there's a lot of parallels. Matthew 24 and Mark 13, John was actually at the feet of Jesus when he taught the things that are, that are contained there. And now John had the privilege of being in the very throne room of God as one thing after another began to be revealed that very much coincides with what Jesus had to say in those very days. Beloved, it is crucial for us to understand that everything John received after this time and everything that he is about to pass on to us through the book of Revelation was received from this perspective in the throne room of God and in light of the greatness of the glory of God. And one of the reasons we need to understand that and really contemplate this fact is because we are supposed to put ourselves in John's place. If you're wondering where you belong in the book of Revelation, you belong in John's shoes, gazing upon these things from the vantage point of the throne room of God. I believe that Romans, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 are the bedrock of everything that comes in Revelation 6 through 22. I believe that everything that comes is supposed to be seen through the lens of the glory of God revealed there. And so I want to encourage you also to return often to Revelation 4 and 5 as we're working our way through this book, however long God grants us to do that. And I want to encourage you not only in our study, but in your life. Go to Revelation 4 and 5 often. I don't think these, again, that these chapters are meant just to teach us things about the book of Revelation. They are meant to become a bedrock for our lives. Beloved, much will be gained if we will simply meditate on the things that John saw and then learn to see things through that perspective. I believe that if we'll do that, God will begin to give us and continue to give us all the things that we need for life in this world. 
He will cause us to be steadfast in love. He will cause us to be patient in affliction. He will cause us to be faithful all the way up to the day of our deaths. Now, since God has revealed his purposes and promises and plans in this book in such a a vivid way, such a captivating way, he has used so many symbols that absolutely capture the imagination and cause a lot of conversation. Obviously, God wants us to talk about the details. Obviously, God uses captivating symbols because he wants us to be captivated. I am not saying that we should not pay attention to the details of the book of Revelation. I am not saying we shouldn't discuss those details and even debate them if we have to, in love, of course. But I am not saying that. I am simply saying that as we give ourselves to the details, we must learn to see the overall point. Our God and Father is seeking to strengthen, establish, and embolden his people in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit as he causes us to fix our eyes upon him and fix our eyes on his purposes, on his promises, on his plans. He is the center of attention. And I pray that he will be the center of attention in our lives. I believe more now than ever that chapter 1, verse 8 is the theme of the book of Revelation. There may be other important verses we'll see along the way that work in tandem with this one, but I truly believe chapter 1, verse 8 is the key to much in this book. God says things about himself that sound familiar to us, but that are very important. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The first part of this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is a declaration that he is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who exists both now and forevermore, who always has been and who always will be. He is God. Then when he says, it says there, says the Lord God, I remember telling you some weeks ago when we were in chapter one that that would be better translated that he is the God who is Lord. That phrase is actually an assertion about God. It's not just calling him the Lord God. It's saying that he is the God who is Lord. It's the God who exists. He is the God who reigns. This is what he wants us to know. He's the God who exists. He is the God who reigns over all things in heaven and in earth. And so he essentially repeats himself and says, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When we were in chapter 1, I taught you that the word here for almighty means actually one who has all dominion. So when we hear the word almighty, we generally, uh, generally think about the sheer power of God. We think about the omnipotence of God. And of course God is all powerful. Of course that's true. But what's being emphasized here is not his sheer power, but his ruling power. He is the one with all dominion. He is the one who rules in heaven. He is the one who rules on earth. Ha pantokrator, that's the Greek word. It's not just Lord, it's the one who has all dominion. And this we're to keep central in our hearts and in our minds as we progress through the book of Revelation. Beloved, the vision of chapters four and five have helped us to see this all the more powerfully, all the more vividly. Our eyes are to be fixed upon God. Our eyes are to be fixed upon his purposes, his promises, his plans. As our eyes are put in the right place, then we can gain all the wisdom we need for life in this earth. We can gain all the wisdom we need for our life together. We can gain all the wisdom we need for our life as a kingdom of priests in this world. We can gain all the wisdom we need for all the things we must endure and all the things God has sent us into the world to accomplish. So again, I beg of you, in the coming days, not just for the sake of this sermon series, but for the sake of life, contemplate often Revelation chapters 4 and 5. With the rest of our time today, I want to look with you at the opening of the first four seals, because I think they're to be taken as a unit. Together, the first four seals echo two passages in the book of Zechariah. And again, if you're a note taker, please write this down. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, and Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. There, Zechariah talks of four horsemen. The terms are different, but the basic metaphor is the same. And here, uh, Jesus again raises the issue of the four horsemen. And again, even though the details are different, I think we're clearly to hear an echo of the one in the other. 
And this is the main reason why I say we need to take these four seals together. But also, these seals are unified by the presence of the living creature as each one of them is revealed and the things that each living creature does along the way. There's absolute unity there because there is unity in the seals. These seals are unified uh, by the presence of four horses and four riders who differ in details, but then together have many things in common. And finally, these four seals are unified in the purpose that they serve. I think the thing we're to learn from the opening of the first four seals is something like this. Although the Lamb of God has been slain and although he has been found worthy to open up the scroll of God, the purposes of God are still being worked out in the world. Everything has yet to come to resolution. There is still chaos and difficulty in this age until he comes again. So in the meantime, we should expect life on this earth to be marked by things like conquest, war, famine, and death until the Lamb comes again. That's the unified purpose of these first four seals. They're trying to help us set proper expectations about life on this earth, even as we have fixed our eyes on the purposes of one who is much greater than everything that takes place on this earth. So that's what tonight is about. Let's begin by looking at the first seal. As John was gazing upon the Lamb, and I think gazing in absolute awe, he probably felt in a positive sense but in a real sense, in a bit of shock, just wondering what he had been seeing. He probably felt more awake and alert and alive than he had ever felt in the entirety of his life. All of his pain, all of his suffering, all of his concerns about life were surely wiped away, and his eyes are fixed upon the Lamb. He's worshiping him along with all of heaven and earth, and now God grants him this privilege. He gets to see the Lamb open the first of the seven seals, And when he saw that, John also heard the voice of one of the four living creatures, which sounded to him like thunder, say, come. The angel or the living creature was speaking not to John, but he was speaking to another person who was yet unseen. But when the living creature said, come, suddenly something appeared to John's sight. John saw a white horse with a rider on that horse, and the rider had a bow in his hands, He had a crown on his head that had been given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Some of your translations might say that he came out bent to conquer or determined to conquer, and that's probably a good translation. He came as someone who had the passion in his heart to conquer, and he came absolutely bent and determined for that purpose. He is going to conquer. I remember years and years ago studying about Napoleon, and they asked him about his temptations when it came to money and and the pleasures of this life, and he said, you can have all that. What I want is power. Give me power, power, power. He was bent on conquering because he was lusting after power, and I think that that's the idea of, of this writer here. From the second century to now, there has been much debate about the identity of this writer and the purpose of the white horse. So I'm just going to lay out quickly before you four options, the four main options that are out there for how to interpret this, and I'll tell you which one I prefer. It's going to be the fourth one, but I'll try to explain along the way why I prefer the fourth option. Some over the centuries have suggested that this rider is actually Jesus Christ because he is on a white horse and that he is going out into the world to establish the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel to the nations of the world. But while Jesus is indeed pictured as a rider of a white horse in Revelation chapter 19, the details of him there are sufficiently different from the details of the rider here to cause me to conclude that this is not Christ himself. And if comparing this chapter with chapter 19 isn't enough to convince you, then just think of the fact that this rider was summoned by one of the living creatures, and Jesus Christ is summoned by no one except God the Father himself. Nobody commends Jesus Christ except God the Father. And so I think we're on pretty safe ground to say that whoever this writer is, it's not Jesus himself. Other interpreters suggest that this writer, though, is an emissary of the kingdom of God who has been sent by Jesus into the world to establish the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel. The main evidence for this is that the promise that Jesus made in Matthew 24 
that the gospel will indeed be preached through all the nations of the earth. And then there is in chapter 19 of Revelation a verse that says that the armies of God are clothed in white and that they are all sitting on white horses. So there is a place later in the book where the army of God, we're all on white horses and clothed in white, whoever that army is. And so some look to chapter 19 and then say, well, this is one of those writers, perhaps a leading writer, who is at the very least standing as a symbol of the church going into the darkness of the world and preaching the gospel. Tom Schreiner is among the more prominent New Testament scholars of our day who hold to this view, and it is a, a valid view. If you choose to take that view, you will definitely have ground to stand on. This has been my view until actually this week. I changed my point of view this week, but there's nothing wrong with holding this view. I would just encourage you to think about the rest of what I'm going to say, and I'd encourage you to continue to pray and dialogue with one another. I don't think at the end of the day this is the correct view. Other interpreters suggest that this writer is actually the Antichrist or an emissary of Satan who has gone out into the world in white to deceive the nations, appearing as an angel of light, if you will, to deceive the nations through lies, through temptation, through sin, through rebellion against God, and through division with one another. George Beale is among the more prominent New Testament scholars of our day who hold this view, and if you hold this view, you have ground to stand on. It is possible that this is, a, this is a deceptive horse and deceptive rider. But finally, the last major option is that there is a group of interpreters that suggest that this rider is simply a, a, spirit, a, a symbol of the spirit of conquest that continuously seizes the human heart so that some of us lust for power and seek after it by any means necessary, just like Napoleon. Napoleon in his day was just the latest of, of a long, long, long string of people who conquered because they had an undying impulse to conquer. And some look at this horse and its rider and say that's what this symbolizes. This symbolizes the quest for, the human quest for power that will seize it by any means necessary. Dennis Johnson is among the more prominent New Testament scholars that hold to this view and while we are all welcome to pray and dialogue about the various potentials here, I have come to embrace this view for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that is, it is in keeping with the other three horses, which we'll look at in a minute. Uh, taken together, the four horsemen have a common purpose, which is basically to wreak havoc on the earth for their own ends. That is in keeping with the echo of Zechariah 1 and, and 6 where the four riders of the four horsemen in Zechariah and now here are, are again, they're bent on destructive things. They're not bent on the uh, kingdom-related things. And so I think as I look back at the echo of Zechariah 1 and 6 and as I look at these four horsemen together, it makes more sense to me that they are unified in their purpose of breeding destruction upon the earth. And then secondly... It is true that in the Roman Empire, kings and conquerors would often ride through the center of whatever their city was on a white horse to proclaim to their cities that they had won a victory. And to demonstrate their victory, they would often have in their train uh, uh, their prisoners of war. But here the key thing is, is just imagine in your mind a king going through town to parade his victory sitting on a white horse. I believe that God himself has drawn upon this cultural metaphor to say that the spirit of conquest will mark this age until Jesus returns, so that, as he says in Matthew 24, we will constantly hear of wars and rumors of wars. I believe that God is trying to warn the church that we are going to have to endure many things at the hands of those who oppose the gospel and who therefore despise the church. Now, we are the salt and light of the world by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, and so I'm not saying that God wants us to just settle on the fact of war and do nothing to promote peace. I think that as the people of God, we should lay down our lives actually to promote justice and peace in any land where we live. I truly believe that. Christians are not fatalists. We are not nihilists. But I do think that Christians are realists. And the reason that we're realists is because God has been clear with us. First of all, in this age, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be no end of this until Christ returns. That's number one. And number two, God has already told us that he's going to bring life on this earth to an utter end. 
He will bring it to a full and final end. And so we should not live for the things of this world and we should not expect peace on this world. Again, please hear me. I'm not saying we should not advocate for and pray for peace. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that I think God the Father is trying to set rightful expectations in our minds so that we will be prepared to live the lives that God would have us live on this earth. As we contemplate this fact, though, that the world will be filled with war until Christ returns, I think we should keep in mind what Dennis Johnson says. These words are so wise. They were encouraging to me. He writes, Yet this portrait of human avarice for power galloping greedily through its present domain towards regions it has yet to conquer is nothing more than God's instrument of judgment sent forth by the Lamb through the breaking of the first seal. In other words, even though war has been released upon the earth, God is in total control. Even though war has been released on the earth, war is nothing more than an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer to bring about his purposes. Yes, there is a lust for power and conquest in the human heart, but the absolute sovereign God is absolutely sovereign even over that. He is in control. And I think that as believers, as we watch uh, the age develop around us right now, as we watch tumultuousness breed inside of our land, as we listen to people, earlier today I listened to a major guy on a major news show say that he is concerned that civil war is going to break out in our country at the highest levels, that it might even become military. I've been thinking about this. He's the first major person I've heard say it out loud. I don't know what's about to happen in our country. I don't know what's about to happen in our world. I'm certainly not here to, to say it's going to be the worst case scenario. But what I am here to say is that no matter what happens, our God is in total control control. And our joy should be in him. Our stability should be in him. Our hope should be in him. We are primarily citizens of his kingdom. And he would then have us live by faith in him and not faith in peace on this earth. Beloved, let us fix our eyes on our absolutely sovereign God and then know his joy. As John continued to gaze at the lamb, he watched the lamb open the second seal and he heard the voice of another living creature say, Come. And having issued this summons, John then saw another horse that was fiery red in appearance. The ESV says bright red, but you should really think of the kind of red you see in a fire. It was fiery red in appearance. It's the same word that they used in those days to talk about red-headed people. My people, I'm Irish, so a lot of my people are redheads. When you think about this particular word, this particular color, see a horse of that color. He saw also a rider that was on the horse that was given permission to take peace from the earth so that people would kill one another by a number of means. And because this was his purpose, he was given a great sword. As the spirit of conquest goes forth into the earth, I think it logically follows that the spirit of peace among men and women will diminish so that we turn on one another and to some degree or another, either personal or all the way up to international, we seek to devour one another. And I put it in this way because while this writer is given power to remove peace from the earth, he's not given power to directly kill anybody. Please notice this. He did not come to kill. He came to remove the conditions of peace so that we would turn on one another. People outside of us can certainly, and, and beings outside of us can certainly create conditions where murderous things happen, but beloved, murder has been in the heart of human beings from Cain until now. We are responsible for the slaying that is to happen on this earth, and this is really the point that I'm driving at. Yes, God has unleashed this writer on the earth, but essentially what he's doing is handing us over to ourselves. And saying, if you want to live in sin and rebellion against me, then what will happen to you if I withdraw my peace from you? Then what will you do? Will you have the greater, bigger, better world you think you will have outside of my will? Or, or what will become of these things? And what God is saying is, I'll tell you what will become. The fiery red of blood will flow throughout the land and across the earth. When the Lamb reveals to John and to the church that God himself has released this horse and its rider into the land, we must understand that he is not so much unleashing outside forces upon us as he is simply handing us over to ourselves. 
He's simply handing us over to the division and deadly impulses that exist inside of us. The God who is infinitely glorious and holy is allowing us to taste the bitter fruit of our sin. It's really that simple. And while this should grieve those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, it should also encourage us because we know that God is even in control of the unleashing of human nature on the earth. And we know that in Christ, he's already provided everything necessary for any human being to turn to him in faith, to believe in Jesus, to be forgiven of their sin, to be healed of the rebellious heart that would cause such things to come about in the earth. So, of course, as believers, we should look at these things and grieve. More than anybody, we should grieve about the blood shed upon this earth. But we should also rejoice because despite the grief, God is in absolute control and our hope is in him. As John continued to gaze at the lamb, he watched as the lamb opened the third of the seven seals and he heard the voice of a third living creature say, come. And having issued the summons, John then saw another horse, now black in appearance, and he saw a rider who had been given a pair of scales, which seems kind of odd. I would not have associated the color black with a pair of scales. I would not have thought about the flow of this whole text, then a pair of scales coming along. But I think the more we look into it, the more sense this makes. John heard something like a voice coming from the midst of the four living creatures, which was probably the lamb himself or probably the voice of God himself. And it said something very practical. It said, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Those seem to me to be commands coming from the throne of God about the state of affairs on the earth. In John's day, a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley were just about enough food to feed one laborer for one day. So when we're looking at the quart of wheat or the three quarts of barley, you're looking at enough food for one day. In their time, a denarius was a laborer's wages for a day. So what's being said is that the financial system of the earth is going to be so greatly impacted that there will be tremendous inflation and you will have to work all day long for nothing but food. There will be nothing left over. These are the conditions not so much of starvation, but they are conditions of famine. They are the conditions of a destabilized world whose currencies are also destabilized so that people are having to do everything they can do day by day by day simply to survive. And while this is definitely a more active act by God of wrath, it is also a natural outcome of, of the spirit of conquest and of, and of murder that is inside the human heart. It is the fruit of our sin. It is the fruit of our rebellion. But please notice the grace of God in here. At the end, God says, but do not touch the wine, do not touch the oil. The olive oil and the wine of this particular region of the world were absolutely crucial, not only to their economy, but to their ability to live. And what I hear God saying is, let human beings taste the bitter fruit of their sin, but not completely. Let their financial systems be destroyed, but not completely. Maybe destroyed is the wrong word. Let them be harmed. Let them be greatly affected, but do not let them be destroyed. God is granting grace to sinners, beloved. That's what's happening here. He's being merciful to people who do not deserve mercy. So even while God is dispensing his wrath, he is also displaying his mercy. And so as believers who will indeed have to live through tumultuous times, I mean, even just this year, we, for the first time in any of our lifetimes, experienced what it was like to go to a store and see empty shelves. This is a, a silly thing, but I love Campbell's soup, the chunky kind, the kind that says healthy request. It probably isn't that healthy, but somehow in my mind, I persuaded myself this is healthier food. Must be a popular product because every time I go to the store, my five or six favorite soups are completely gone. You know, toilet paper is completely gone. Many other things completely gone. This was, a, a, I think, an act of wrath from God toward the world on the financial and economic systems of the world, and yet he was gracious to us. Have any of us starved to death? No, they are minor famine conditions, but not starvation conditions because the Lord is good. The Lord shows his mercy. We will have to endure many things as believers, and yet our hope is in God, and so our rejoicing completely should be in God. As John continued to gaze at the lamb, 
he saw the lamb open the fourth of the seven seals and he heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And having issued this summons, John then heard or saw another horse that this time was pale in appearance. The color here is kind of a a greenish yellow that you should have in your mind, but it was the color that was used in that day to talk of people who were very sickly and about to die. So if you can think of somebody on their sickbed that's very near to death and the color of their face, that's what's being talked about. It is the color of death. That was the color of this horse. And on this horse, John saw a rider whose name was Death, and he was followed closely by Hades, which is to say the place of the dead. Unlike the rider of the red horse, death and Hades were, in verse 8 you will see, actually given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So their authority is more active than passive. The red rider, uh, the rider of the red horse had a passive authority. The rider of the pale horse has an active authority to actually cause death. This does not mean that God will, in fact, uh, cause them to take all 25% of those that they were uh, allowed to take, but it is possible that that's true. And one way or the other, this does mean that God has essentially given authority to death to kill as a punishment for our sin and for our rebellion. We will experience death repeatedly in this life, and beloved, every time that happens, we should not necessarily think that this particular person died because of their particular sins, because sometimes people die for other reasons. Jesus Christ was put to death for the sins of others completely, 100% so. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been killed by the hand of others who are in sin, not because of their particular sins, but without sin in general, death would not even exist. Every time we experience death at any level, we are experiencing the bitter fruit of our sin and rebellion against God. Human beings will express, experience death in a variety of forms, volumes, and intensities as long as we exist on this earth. And while this reality should grieve us as Christians and call us to cry out for personal and corporate mercy, it should also cause us to rejoice in God and to sing the praise of the Lord who has spared the majority of human beings, according to this text, 75%, that they might come to know the grace of God in Christ. Oh, beloved, God could easily withdraw the life of every human being on the earth in a heartbeat. Last Wednesday night in our community group, we were talking about this text together, and Dave brought, Dave Fergus brought to my attention Job 34, 14 through 15, which says this, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. The picture here is that with a single word and in a single moment, God could take the life of every human being and he would not be unjust to do so. He would be perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, but he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is a God who is steadfast in love and faithful to his promises. And not only has he spared us so that we can believe in him and be saved, but he has created all the conditions by which we can be saved. And so again, beloved, believers ought to grieve at death. In fact, we must grieve death more than anyone else does because we understand the roots of it more than anyone else does. Most of you know that on both sides of Kim and I's families, we have experienced a tremendous amount of death this year. My whole family is in great grief. I talked to my older brother the other day. He's 16 years older than me, tough, rough, blue-collar Irishman, this guy. But he's broken by everything we experience. He doesn't know how to put one foot in front of another right now, and I understand him, understand what he feels. But in some way, I feel the sting of death deeper than he does because God has given me eyes to see the why of death. And yet, at the same time, there is a joy inside the pain. Just like Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, we grieve death in light of the joy God has set before us because we know that death is not the final word, that the God who is absolutely sovereign over everything is absolutely sovereign over death. So yes, we grieve, and yes, we rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our eyes are fixed on him. Our hope is 100% set on him. And if it's not, 
That just means we need sanctification. If it's not, it simply means we need to pray for the grace to stare at the Lord and stare at the Lord and stare at the Lord until our hope is fully set in Him. As we consider these first four seals as a whole and think about all that they imply for life on earth, we should envision them as signs of the wrath of God on the earth against sinners and our sin. God is infinitely glorious infinitely holy, and he is also infinitely righteous and just so that he cannot sit idly by when the most valuable thing in heaven and on earth has been offended, namely his glory. He cannot sit idly by when people demean and diminish and dismiss his glory and choose lesser pleasures like fleshly power and fleshly pleasure instead of all the pleasures he has provided for us. And so again, when we contemplate the devastating reality of the four horsemen roaming about the earth, we should contemplate the wrath of God against sin, but we should also contemplate the devastating effects of our sin. In other words, what I'm saying is, our sin is this serious to God, and God is this serious about sin. The other day I was telling somebody that there is a certain type of sin in the world that really disgusts me. And that makes me feel a kind of feeling that I wish to God I had toward my own sin. Because what I had to confess to this person is while I feel this way about this, this other group of sinners over here, I don't feel that disgusted about my own sin. I've kind of made friends with some of my pet sins, and I hate that. When I need to understand how serious my sin is to God, one thing I could do is look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 and say, it's that serious. Yes, our sin is that serious, and yes, God is that serious about our sin. We should contemplate these things together, but then we must include a third thing. As we contemplate the wrath of God and the reality of our sin, we should also contemplate the fact that the Lamb of God has been slain to ransom a people for himself, to forgive some persons from every single tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth so that we can be with God that we can have peace in God so that we can see the glory of God and enter into the joy of God forever and ever and ever. The great and glorious God who is righteous beyond compare and must punish sin has made a way to forgive our sin and to cleanse us of the impulse that causes us to sin. And most of you know what that way is. God sent his only son into the world, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, so that he could live a perfectly righteous life before God, not sinning a single iota in thought, in affection, in word, or in deed. He sent his only son into the world to die a horrific death on the cross, because on that cross, Jesus Christ was absorbing the wrath of God towards sinners and sin. This is why he suffered so greatly. Oh, we could point to the lashes. We could point to the nails piercing his hands and feet. But the thing that crushed the spirit of Jesus was the crushing weight of the wrath of God against sinners and sin. He did that for us. He took our punishment in our place. And then God sent his only begotten son into this world to be buried in a grave. And then on the third day, to come out of that grave to new life, he was all the way dead. And he came all the way back to life because God was demonstrating through his son, that he is the God of life, that he holds the power of life and death, and that nothing, not even sin and rebellion, can ultimately destroy the life that he has decreed. And so now, every person who puts their faith in Jesus, every person who looks at God and says, God, I believe that you sent Jesus into the world to live and die and be raised again for sinners and their sin. I want to put my faith in you. Every person who does that, now they will never perish. They will never die before God, but they will inherit eternal life through faith in Christ. When a person believes in what God has done to forgive their sin and the impulse that drives them to sin, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is counted toward them, and God now looks at us as though we have never sinned. He sees us clothed in the whiteness of the righteousness of Christ. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see this just tremendously beautiful phrase that they made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. By believing in Jesus, all the, the darkness of their spirit was made pure, pure white. 
simply by the blood that he shed on our behalf. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, all of our sin and all the consequences of our sin, all the punishment for our sin is put upon Jesus. He suffers it on the cross. He takes it 100% away from us so that there is no penalty left to pay whatsoever. We are free. God says in Colossians 1, maybe chapter 2, pardon me for forgetting the exact reference, that he canceled our debt toward him by nailing it to the cross. He nailed our debt to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ completely satisfied that debt for us. So when we believe in him, we get eternal life, and we are free. We're absolutely free from the consequences of death. When we put our faith in Christ, we get this amazing promise that even though we die an earthly death, and someday most all of us will, unless Jesus Christ returns, all of us will. Even though they bury us in the ground, one day God promises us that he will give the command and we will come back up out of the earth. We will have a physical resurrection. We will be brought into the presence of God. We will see him face to face. We will be transformed into his image by the sheer power of his glory. We will have our tears wiped away. All suffering will be taken away. We will never suffer once more. We will never shed another tear. We will forever enter together into the happiness of our master. This is the destiny of all who believe in Christ. And so, yes, we look at the four horsemen and we think seriously about the wrath of God. We feel the weight of the wrath of God. We look at the four horsemen and we think seriously about our sin. We take on ourselves the, the weight of our sin. We let ourselves feel the power of the weight of our sin. And yes, as we think about the four horsemen, we think about what God has done to forgive our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And hopefully, as we do that, we are inspired to fix our eyes upon God, to set our hope upon God, to live all of life through the lens of the glory of God. I think this is the purpose of Revelation 6, 1 through 8. So if you have yet to put your faith in Christ tonight, either here in this room or if you're watching on our YouTube channel, I want to strongly encourage you to contemplate the things that have been said in these verses. If something I've said is wrong, let it go. It, what I've said is not the important thing here. What God is saying, that's the important thing here. If you have heard the gospel and your heart has awakened with desire to believe in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus and his grace will be showered upon you. You will have eternal life beginning today. You will have eternal life. And if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, beloved, in the midst of tumultuous times, culturally, corporately, personally, fix your eyes upon him. I urge you, go to Revelation 4 and 5. Contemplate the glory of God. Fix your eyes on your absolutely sovereign God and know that he has settled all of the major issues of life for you already you remember the last words Jesus spoke on the cross. It is what? It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for who you are and for how you have revealed your glory in heaven and on earth. We thank you so much for your ruling power in heaven and on earth. We thank you so much for your revealing heart that gave this scroll to John and reveals these things to us, or at least gave him the understanding of what these things mean, and then now passes these things on to us. And Father, I pray that as we contemplate this first portion, the four horsemen, that we would not be afraid to contemplate your wrath and our sin, and that we would be eager to contemplate Christ and the grace that you have poured on our lives through him. Father, please work in us, work through us, work in the world by this text. And for what you have done, and for what you will do, we praise your great and gracious name. Amen.